All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's podcast. My name is Sean Weiss, a.k.a. The Compliance Guy. And I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule and spending it with me today. Uh, today, I want to talk about creating and structuring winning appeals, because I believe that this is a lost art. And I honestly, over 26 years of doing this kind of work, have picked up a lot of techniques and have picked up a lot of understanding for how to engage with payers, contractors, both at the federal, state, and private uh, slash commercial payer levels. So I want to begin, obviously, by recognizing the fact that, look, there's no doubt Audits are happening. My clients are notifying me almost on a daily basis of letters that are being sent to them by the Unified Program Integrity Contractors, UPICs. Uh, there's no shortage of RAC letters, recovery audit contractor letters. We're also seeing quite a bit of the comprehensive error rate testing, right? The CERT letters that are coming out. And I believe any time now we're going to start to see the targeted probe and educate the TPE program get back into full swing. But beyond the government payers, there is no doubt that United, Blue Cross, Slash Anthem, Cigna, Aetna, they are all aggressively pursuing providers to claw back, if you will, monies for which they believe the providers might not necessarily be entitled. Either through an overcode or more likely an underdocumentation of the services. And for as long as I've been doing this, the Utilization of, quote-unquote, not medically necessary um, has been around, continues to be around, and will most likely be around until we get to a point of proficiency in going after these agencies, these contractors, these payers, in a meaningful way that puts them on notice that the utilization of these generic denials has to stop. Just in the last month, I've done a, a, a number of administrative law judge hearings with my very good friend and colleague, Amanda Waish from Brennan, Mana, and Diamond. Um, and it's, it's really unbelievable to kind of see how the... Um, Office of Medicare Hearing and Appeals has structured these hearings. Uh, we worked on one client that the total demand started at about 1.3 or 1.4 million dollars, and uh, through the use of uh, arguments against the statistical sampling and extrapolation methodologies used by, uh, at the time, it was a zone program integrity contractor, the ZPIC. 
Uh, we utilize Frank Cohen, and, and Frank is, for those of you that are not familiar with Frank Cohen, he's just an absolute brilliant, beautiful mind when it comes to advanced mathematics, predictive analytic modeling, statistical sampling, extrapolation. And we were able to get it down to uh, about a $40,000 uh, demand for repayment, which is tremendous. But what's even more interesting is the fact that OMA assigned these claims to a number of different ALJs. And each one had their own methodology of how they wanted to handle the claims. Um, one judge in particular specifically had 22 cases that he had to hear, but he felt that it was too many to do in one day. So we've had to split 22 claims over multiple days, but those multiple days ran into multiple months. It, it, it was just incredulous. And it helps to put into perspective the fact that OMA at one point had more than 750,000 outstanding appeals. Now, the latest numbers that I've seen show the number of backlogged appeals down to about 120,000. It may be a little bit lower than that now. I think that number was about a month ago. And I'm definitely going to talk about this because the final rule that went into effect in 2017 really put the onus onto OMA to get their ALJs and attorney adjudicators moving in the right direction. So as I said, I think it's critical for us to spend some time really trying to lay a foundation and then kind of fill in the gaps throughout this podcast with different regulatory pieces that kind of help paint a complete picture for you, the listener. So I want to utilize the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services as my gold standard for the simple reason of most payers on the commercial side tend to kind of mirror what Medicare does from an appeal standpoint. Obviously, they don't all have five levels of appeal like Medicare does, but there are some similarities. And we'll talk about your governing documents and your participation agreements and your um, uh, updates that should be sent to you annually on your rights as a participating provider to appeal. But let's go ahead and start by focusing with Medicare first. And I want to talk about the fee-for-service uh, out of the gate because, again, uh, for those of you that are new to our industry or those of you that have not really uh, done a lot of appeals, but now for whatever reason it seems to have fallen into your lap as a responsibility. I want to make certain that we really address the fundamentals, that we build a base on which to um, advance from. So when we talk about the Medicare appeals process from a fee for service standpoint, there are five levels. Level one is a redetermination by what is called a Medicare Administrative Contractor, or a MAC. Now, when you file a level one appeal, don't expect any level of um, 
success. I would say the level of success at level one is maybe 5% if you're lucky. And the reason being is that the individual who's handling your level one appeal is typically no different from an educational standpoint than the person who performed the initial review and determined that the claim was not a payable claim. Level two is when you move to what's called a reconsideration. And a reconsideration is done by a qualified independent contractor, or what we refer to as a quick. At this level, I will tell you it's about a 50-50 success rate in getting a claim overturned. Uh, We see a lot of partially favorables. uh, But it's really interesting when you see those partially favorables and the claims that were continued to be denied, uh, a lot of times, often, you can't tell the difference between the ones that were actually adjudicated in your favor versus those that were upheld. So it's it becomes maddening. It becomes a very frustrating process. So after level two, you can move to level three, which is what they call a disposition by the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals, or OMA. This is your administrative law judge hearing. We have been seeing a very good success rate at the ALJ level. I will tell you over uh, 26 years of working in healthcare, really for the last 22 years uh, is where I've really focused my um, my practice, my, my career on handling appeals on behalf of clients. And my clients, uh, obviously, they range in side, uh, size from the solo practitioner all the way up through the integrated delivery healthcare systems with thousands of providers. Um, again, really interesting uh, to see how some of these cases for one group has been split among uh, multiple ALJs, and we could get into that a little bit later uh, on this podcast. If for some reason you are unsuccessful at level three, you do have the option to be able to appeal to what's called a review by the Medicare Appeal Council or the Departmental Appeals Board. It's called a DAB. Now, at a DAB, you're not actually making any arguments in person. Everything is typically done on the record, and and we'll get into that a little bit further down the road as well. And then finally, if you exhaust yourself at the DAB or the Medicare Appeal Council review, You do have the option to go to level five, which is a judicial review, which is typically held in U.S. District Court. Now, for some of these levels of appeal, there are uh, financial requirements in order to be able to appeal to certain levels, and I'll talk about those as we proceed. But the most important thing that you can keep in mind, irrespective of whether it's a level one level two, level three, level four, or level five appeal, they all have to be done in writing. Okay? So, as I said, in 2017, there were a lot of new regulations governing the notice and content of requests for administrative law judge hearings. And the three main ones that stick out are these. The rule, the final rule, authorized ALJs or attorney adjudicators to vacate dismissals. 
It also requires OMA to request missing information essential, essential to resolving issues on appeal. Now, this is with tolling of adjudication timeframes, and, and we could talk about what tolling means uh, a little bit later on. And finally, it, it allows them to remand authority due to missing appeal information or other reasons uh, back to either the quick or back to the appellant itself. So as with any of my podcasts, there's always going to be terms that you need to be familiar with, and it's no different in this one here. So I want to talk about some of these, right? So the first one to be aware of is what's called the amount in controversy. So the threshold dollar amount remaining in dispute required for a level three or a level five appeal, um, you have to be able to meet that minimum threshold. And keep in mind, the amount in controversy or what's referred to as an AIC is adjusted annually by a percentage increase tied to what's referred to as a consumer price index. Second is the term appeal, right? This is the process used when a party, so as an example, a beneficiary, a provider, or supplier disagrees with an initial determination of a revised determination for healthcare items or services. Then you have the appellant. Obviously, that's a person or an entity who's filing the appeal. You have what is also referred to as an attorney adjudicator. Now, these are licensed attorneys who are employed by the United States Department of Health and Human Services, um, the Office of Medicare Hearing and Appeals, again, OMA. And they are required to possess knowledge of Medicare coverage and payment laws as well as guidance. And these individuals are basically authorized to issue decisions on reviews of the quicks, dismissals, and certain ALJ hearing requests. But there are limitations to what an attorney adjudicator is able to do. Then you have what's called a determination. And this is a decision made on payment and or liability of the claim. Another term to be familiar with is one uh, uh, referred to as escalation. Now, escalation in appeals is a little bit different. So when we're talking about escalation from an appeal standpoint, this is when an appellant requests moving a reconsideration pending at the QIC level, which is your second level of appeal, or higher to the next level because the adjudicator is unable to make a timely decision or dismissal of the claim. So the appeal must also meet the applicable amount in controversy um, from a requirement and aggregation provision standpoint in order to go to either level three, which is your administrative law judge proceeding or hearing, or level five, which is your federal uh, court. So then you have what's called an MRN. This is a Medicare redetermination notice. This is basically a letter informing a party about the max redetermination decision. If any of you are non-participating, they do define this term as well. So for physicians and suppliers who have not signed a participation agreement with Medicare, um, but they 
actually choose to accept or not accept Medicare assignment on a claim-by-claim basis, your non-participating physicians and suppliers have limited appeal rights. So make sure you understand that. Now, on the record, this is a decision based solely on the information within the administrative record and any evidence that was submitted within the request. So what that means is basically there's no hearing. And I have to tell you, I really, really like doing a lot of my appeals on the record because I think it removes the human element of um, error. I think for attorneys or for people like myself who do a lot of these hearings, not having to rely on an expert witness to testify who may actually be really, really good in written form, can write a great report and, and really explain things well in writing. But for whatever reason, you put them on a stand or you put them into a situation where they're going to be direct examined or they're going to be cross-examined and they get tongue-tied. Certain things that they want to say might not come out or things that they want to say don't come out the way that we would want them to say those. So by doing these appeals on the record, I think you eliminate a significant problem that could exist with somebody misspeaking or, and, and, and keep this in mind, during an administrative law judge hearing, the judge will ask the experts questions. I've had it done a number of times. I, I think I said when I started this podcast, I've done in my career, I've probably done more than 300 administrative law judge hearings uh, over you know, a 20, 22-year period. Um, and the ones that I did earlier this year with Frank Cohen, um, myself, Amanda Wesch, um, I, I will tell you, multiple judges asked very pointed questions, especially when it got into arguments over the statistical sampling methodology and extrapolation, uh, I got asked a lot of questions with regard to clarifying for the judge how evaluation and management services are actually determined from a provider's perspective. And it's, it's nerve-wracking, uh, even for somebody like myself who's got a lot of experience doing this. Uh, and, but I will tell you this, if you don't get butterflies anytime you have to testify in a hearing, whether it's a mediation, an arbitration, uh, state court, federal proceedings, administrative uh, hearings, if you don't get those butterflies, then you're doing something wrong. Because I got to tell you, when I get the butterflies, I feel like they make me work harder, they make me more focused, and they make me want to really perform at a level where the judge, it leaves no doubt in their mind to the competencies that I bring as, a, as an expert, as a subject matter expert. All right, so let's move beyond that. The final term to be familiar with is party. Yes, I love to go to parties. I, I, I enjoyed parties when I was in college, but the party that I'm talking about here 
is a person or entity withstanding to appeal an initial determination or subsequent administrative appeal determination or decision. So, as I said, CMS created new rules governing party and non-party participation at ALJ hearings. And really what they did was to focus what entities would be recipients of notices of hearings. Also, the limitations on how many CMS entities can actually attend an ALJ hearing as a party. And also, the prohibition of fully favorable on-the-record decisions wherein CMS or a CMS contractor has elected to be a party to a dispute. Now, CMS created regulations permitting stipulated on-the-record decisions, basically requiring the identification of hearing attendees and witnesses and expanding the definition of quote-unquote good cause to modify a hearing time or place. So extension requests are considered on a case-by-case -case basis. So there is no complete list of acceptable reasons for filing a late appeal, but there are some examples, such as the notice you are appealing was mailed to the wrong address. This happens, and it happens all the time. Um, a Medicare representative gave you incorrect information about the claim you're appealing. That never happens, right? In the event there's an illness, either yours or a close family member's, something that prevented you from handling business matters. And then the person you are helping appeal a claim, if they're illiterate, if they do not speak English, or could not otherwise read or understand the coverage notice. So those are all good cause reasons for an extension. So if you think you have a good reason for not appealing on time, you've got to send in your appeal as you normally would, but include a clear explanation of why your appeal is late. So if the reason has to do with illness or other medical conditions, a letter or supporting documentation from a treating provider believe it or not, is actually necessary. It's something that is required. Now, if you're planning to submit new evidence at the administrative law judge level, uh, specifically, the regulations require that any new evidence submitted at the ALJ level be accompanied by a statement explaining why the evidence was not previously submitted. So keep in mind, Without an explanatory statement, the new evidence will not be considered. And again, the regulations also provide four, four, count them, one, two, three, four, four new examples of when good cause may be found for the admission of new evidence. And, and that's what I provided for you just a couple of moments ago. So... The ALJs have also been given significant leeway and discretion in managing the conduct of individuals during a hearing. And the final rule strengthened the ALJ discretion in managing the conduct of a hearing by permitting the judges to limit testimony or arguments that are irrelevant or if they're repetitive or sufficiently um, developed. 
And again, ALJs also are permitted to excuse a party or representative that the judge deems either uncooperative, disruptive, or abusive. Listen, here's what I will tell you. For, for those attorneys who are listening to me or for those uh, that are handling their own appeals, especially going to the administrative law judge the third level, if you have a provider that you're planning to have testify because you decided not to do this on the record, and this provider has a habit of mouthing off or um, what I call verbal vomiting, you have got to keep their phone on mute. You have got to limit their responses. I'll tell you a quick story. I had a, a pulmonologist several years ago um, who was still handwriting his notes. And the judge, right towards the end of the hearing, said, you know, thank you, everybody, for your time. Um, Dr. So-and-so, I, I have one final question for you, sir. My question is this. Your handwriting is problematic. We've addressed that throughout the course of this hearing today. It's illegible. And my concern is that another provider cannot assume the care of your patient in a safe and prudent manner should you not be available to consult with them. So my question to you is, doctor, why do you allow yourself to write so illegibly when you know the words matter? And every hair on my arms stood up at that moment. Because I was afraid of what was going to come out of that provider's mouth. And before I could caution him, he said, Your Honor, it's very simple. I write the way I write for moments just like this. I can make it say whatever the hell I want it to say. Well, I closed my little portfolio that I was taking my notes in, clicked my pen, put it down, looked at the doctor, and just shook my head because I knew. We were cooked. We were cooked. All because this provider just could not control his emotions and control the words that came out of his mouth. And it was unbelievable that he was shocked when he got a wholly unfavorable from the judge. All he had to do was keep quiet. All he had to do was say, Your Honor, I can read my handwriting. Other providers can read my handwriting. My handwriting is for clinical use. The lay person who doesn't have training and experience in reading handwritten notes, they're, they're not the individuals who my notes are intended for. Something like that. But he just couldn't do it. So anyways... Let's just keep moving on. So, again, um, adjudication timeframes, um, the simplification of escalation provisions, uh, the regulations governing the adjudication timeframes and the simplification of these escalation provisions, uh, especially when we're talking about statistical sampling cases such as the required amount in controversy and what sample claim information is actually required for an appeal. Keep in mind that this includes statistically extrapolated cases. 
as well as untimely asserted challenges to the statistical sample and or extrapolation. Now, the final rule that was issued clarified the scope of the ALJs or attorney adjudicators required review of the sampled claims when issuing a decision. And this was called a statistical sampling initiative. So this basically created a new alternative adjudication program intended to provide appellants with an expedited and efficient resolution to pending eligible ALJ claims or appeals. So what OMA did was to assign claims to ALJs that were filed in January through March of 2014. And based on that backlog, uh, by participating in the statistical sampling initiative, an appellant was more likely to receive an, a, a more expeditious resolution to its appeals than would be achieved by awaiting you know, an ALJ hearing on a claim-by-claim -claim basis. Now, in order to participate in this initiative, an appellant can request statistical sampling, and an ALJ may refer an interested appellant or an OMA statistical sampling coordinator has the right to identify potentially eligible claims and recommend an appellant's participation in the program. Now, in this statistical sampling initiative, an expert will draw a random sample of claims from the universe of an appellant's pending eligible claims. And then following the ALJ hearing and determination on the sampled claims, the determination will be extrapolated to the universe of pending eligible claims. So eligible claims and appeals are defined as those in which all jurisdictional requirements for an ALJ hearing have actually been met. So what are those? Well, there's four of them. The first is that the beneficiary was not found liable after the initial determination, nor participated in the qualified independent contractor reconsideration. Second is the request for hearing constitutes an appeal of a QIC reconsideration decision. Third, there is no outstanding requests for settlement conference facilitation regarding the claim. And finally, fourth, there has to be at least 250 claims at issue per eligible claim category. Now, there are three eligible claim categories for the statistical sampling initiative. The first is prepayment claim denials. Second is postpayment non-recovery audit contractor claim denials. And the third is postpayment rack claim denials from one recovery audit contractor. So here, an appellant can meet the 250 claim minimum threshold for multiple claim categories, but each claim category has to have at least 250 claims at issue. And in the event that an appellant has multiple categories of at least 250 claims, a separate statistical sample has to be conducted on each category. So, for the purposes of the statistical sampling initiative, an appellant has to be a single Medicare provider or supplier. Now, in the event multiple um, providers or suppliers with multiple NPIs are owned by a single entity, the owning entity 
can serve as the appellant as long as the owning entity agrees to receive or make any payment from or to Medicare as a result of the extrapolated findings. Now, here's the most important part about the statistical sampling initiative. The sample of claims has to be selected by a trained and experienced statistical expert per Medicare statistical sampling methodologies, which is set forth in Medicare's program integrity manual. You can find this in chapter eight, beginning at section 8.4. So once the appellant expresses interest in the program, OMA will generate a list of potential claims, creating the universe of eligible claims. The appellant will then receive the potential list to review for completeness. And then an ALJ will conduct a pre-hearing conference to discuss and finalize the universe of claims, as well as to review the proposed statistical sampling process and answer any questions that may exist. Then following the pre-hearing conference, the ALJ will issue a post-conference order, which will become binding as long as there's no objections that are filed by either side. And then finally, the sampled claims will be combined and assigned to a lead ALJ for an actual hearing. And the ALJs being assigned depend upon the size of the universe of claims. So, for example, if a universe is 250 to 750 claims, two additional ALJs will be assigned and each ALJ will separately hear and decide on one-third of the statistically sampled claims. Now, if the universe is larger than 750 claims, they could potentially assign three to four additional ALJs, with each of these judges hearing and deciding on one-quarter to one-fifth of the statistically sampled claims. So what happens if you disagree with the statistical sampling. What if you want to challenge it? How do you go about that? Well, Section 935 of the MMS actually provides guidelines for conducting statistical extrapolations. And you can find these in the Medicare Program Integrity Manual. It's actually CMS Publication 100-8, Chapter 3, Subsection 3.10.1, through 3.10.11.2. Yes, I know I'm not making it easy for you, but my job is to provide you the regulations to help you know where to look for the information in order to be able to be successful in your challenges. And that's what I'm doing. So let's talk about actually filing your appeal. So as we started this podcast today, we talked about the appeals process and the fact that it has five levels, right? So obviously, to um, reiterate those, level one is the redetermination, level two is the reconsideration, level three is the administrative law judge, level four is the Medicare Appeal Council, level five is your judicial review by a federal district court. Now, if you wish to have a third party represent you at an appeal, Obviously, you can appoint your representative in one of uh, uh, a couple of different ways. 
The first is to fill out an appointment of representation form. Uh, this is form number 1696, and you can obviously get a copy by uh, going to uh, cms.gov forward slash CMS forms forward slash downloads forward slash CMS 1696.pdf. All right. So let's talk about some specific areas to focus. First is you've got to determine whether the, over, the overpayment was improper. Were you paid incorrectly? Or are they utilizing a generic denial without any grounds for recoupment against your practice or your organization? Second, determine if you were actually paid for the claim or claims. I can't tell you how many times we have seen a demand for overpayment, but yet the actual claim processing rejected. So they were never paid for the claim in the first place. Keep in mind that current and future reimbursement risk should be determined through internal audits. This is how you mitigate external audits and overpayment demands. You've got to have a strong internal audit process. Now, if you identify any errors, You've got to take corrective action. You've got to create a cap, a corrective action plan. And then make sure that you determine the cost of engaging uh, uh, professionals to handle the appeals process. Um, and I, my recommendation is I'd break it down by stage, right? I think level one appeals obviously can always be handled internally, depending on uh, whether it's a partial favorable or it's a wholly unfavorable uh, from the redetermination and your, deter you know, your decision is to move forward with the quick level two for reconsideration. I think those can also be handled internally by your staff as long as you understand the requirements for filing um, and, and you can write a strong letter of medical necessity. You could write clinical rebuttals, things of that nature, I think you can handle those internally. If not, obviously, there's plenty of well-seasoned um, uh, healthcare professionals out there that specialize in this kind of work. Um, but I think when you start to get to the third level, the administrative law judge hearing, I think that's where you absolutely need to uh, consider utilizing an outside expert who, you know, really can navigate these waters for you because there are a lot of moving parts at the third level and I would say everything beyond that so whether it's level three level four level five uh, getting yourself the right expert somebody who you can connect with somebody who you can collaborate with so that they're conveying your points that need to be conveyed in a professional concise manner is so important um Again, determine whether source information exists regarding Medicare reimbursement policy, and, and then take the time to review it, to see if it helps or hurts your position. Again, regulations, national coverage determinations, local coverage determinations, professional journals, articles, these are all things that should be sourced and cited for your arguments. And then finally, 
finally, make sure to determine whether the claims were erroneous or if the potential for fraud exists. Because that could be the difference between you actually needing to make an OIG self-disclosure protocol. And if you didn't listen to my podcast on um, a compliance officer's roadmap to the self-disclosure protocol, I strongly urge you to take the time to listen to that. All right. So I want to talk about, obviously, some pitfalls to avoid when, when we're considering the appeals process. First, don't jump to the conclusion your issue or issues automatically require a self-disclosure protocol. They don't. Not all of them, unless there is the potential for fraud. Oftentimes, issues can be re, you know, remedied through a corrected claims process or through a voluntary refund to your Medicare administrative contractor. Also, filing an appeal based on principle rather than facts and potential outcomes is, is just bonehead. Um, again, engaging the appeals process when it's more intelligent and cheaper to make a refund and avoid additional costs is always what I'm going to recommend to my clients. Uh, really, really track your filing deadlines because if you miss a deadline to file, you're done. Also, providing limited analysis or failing to fix identified problems going forward those are things that just either lead to a dismissal of your claim or the rationale behind why the payers continue to come back and audit you again and again and again. So let's, let's go back and talk a little bit more about the ALJ process since I really think that's where the bulk of things are at this point right now in 2021. Uh, because as I said, you could pretty much forget about success at the redetermination or reconsideration levels of an appeal with Medicare. And here's some interesting numbers. You ready for this? Between 2009 and 2014, and this is important. I know I'm talking about 09 to 14, but this is when we started to see that buildup of 750,000 pending cases. And I'll get to that in just a moment. The number of requests for an ALJ hearing or review increased 1,222% between fiscal years 2009 through 2014. And the fact is that despite significant gains, gains in OMA's ALJ productivity, each ALJ issued on average a record 1,048 decisions and an additional 456 dismissals. So the number of requests for an ALJ hearing and requests for reviews of QIC and IRE dismissals continued during that time to exceed OMA's capacity to adjudicate their, uh, their requests. Which is why, back in April of 2016, OMA had over 750,000 pending appeals. And even though their adjudication capacity was 77,000 appeals per year, uh, per year with additional adjudica uh, adjudication capacity 
of 15,000 appeals per year, which was expected to be by the end of 2016, it created a 10-year backlog. Folks, this was the same that they're seeing in the civil courts in India. Process that for a minute. This is the United States of America. It's taking 10 years for an ALJ to hear a claim. Folks, this is 2021. In the beginning of this year, we were arguing claims from 2013 and 2012. I kid you not. Keep in mind, there were statutory changes made by BIPA, which included a 90-day adjudication time frame for ALJs to adjudicate appeals of the QIC reconsiderations, which were beginning on the date that a request for an ALJ hearing was timely filed. 90 days, but our backlog was 10 years. So it leads us to the question of who's actually reviewing your claims at the payers? Well, section 3.1.1.1 of the Medicare Integrity Manual requires that coverage determinations are made only by registered nurses, licensed practical nurses, or physicians, unless the task can be delegated to another licensed healthcare professional. Now, in that same section, they also talk about the fact that reviews of coding determinations must be made by quote-unquote certified coders, but should also be made by those who possess the requisite skills and the specialty they are reviewing. Folks, if you have somebody who is reviewing neurosurgery claims, you should darn well request their credentials. And you should question the fire out of them to make certain that this isn't somebody with proficiency in primary care. And upon receipt of disclosure of the identity and qualifications of the auditors, a request for the disclosure of the identity and qualification of the auditor should also be made. And should the matter be escalated to an administrative law judge, you absolutely, irrespective of what anybody tells you, you have the right to request formal discovery of such materials. All right. So, once an initial claim determination is made by a contractor, whether you're a beneficiary, a provider, or a supplier, you have the right to appeal that determination. Remember, physicians and suppliers who do not take assignment on claims have very limited appeal rights. Also, remember that as a beneficiary, they have the right to transfer their appeal rights to non-participating physicians or suppliers who actually provide the items or services and do not otherwise have appeal rights. And last but not least, remember all appeal requests must be made in writing. All right, so in the last bit of time that we have together, I want to talk about some of the other levels. And let's start with the redetermination. As I said here, the contractor staff handling your redetermination were not involved in making the initial claim determinations. Um, 
So the appellant at the redetermination level has to file the request for redetermination with the contractor, uh, which is also noted uh, on the remittance advice within 120 days from the date of receipt of the initial determination. Now, the initial determination is the Medicare summary notice. It's also referred to as an MSN. And this is issued to the beneficiary and the remittance advice, the RA, is issued to the provider or supplier. And the MSN and RA also include information about how to file a request for a redetermination. And at the first level, there is no minimum monetary threshold required to request a redetermination. So that's important. So physicians, suppliers, and beneficiaries have to follow the directions provided to them, as I said, on their RA or their MSN to request a redetermination. Um, when you're doing this, again, it's a written request. Um, but if you're not utilizing the proper form for the redetermination, which is CMS uh, 20027, if you're, if you're going to submit it on a sheet of paper, you have to include the beneficiary name, the Medicare Health Insurance Claim Number, which is also called the HIC, H-I-C, the specific service and or item or items for which a redetermination is being requested, the specific date or dates of service, and the name and signature of the party of the representative of the party. Remember that the appellant should attach any supporting documentation to their redetermination request. Now, by statute, the contractors will generally issue a decision either via a letter, an MSN, or an RA within 60 days of receipt of the redetermination request. And keep in mind, if a claim contains a minor error or omission, the claim may be corrected through the reopening process rather than an actual appeal process. All right. The reconsideration, this is your second level. This is a party to the redetermination has the right to request a reconsideration if you're dissatisfied with the redetermination, which 99% of you are going to. Um, the quick will conduct the reconsideration. Remember, their process allows for an independent review of an initial determination, including the redetermination, which may include a review of medical necessity issues by a panel of physicians or other healthcare professionals. And here, there is no minimum monetary threshold required to request a reconsideration. Okay. So again, just like the redetermination, there is no monetary threshold required to request a reconsideration. Same thing, if you're going to request a reconsideration, you want to use form CMS 20033. But if you don't use the form, you have to, again, include a beneficiary's name, the HIC number, the specific service and or item for which the reconsideration is requested, the specific date of service, the name and signature of the party or the authorized or appointed representative of the party submitting the appeal, and the name of the contractor that made the redetermination. So in the request for reconsideration, the appellant has to clearly explain the reason for disputing the redetermination decision. Don't forget that you want to submit 
your RA or MRN and any other useful documentation to the reconsideration request. Also remember that documentation that is submitted after the reconsideration request has been filed may result an extension of the time frame that a QIC has to complete its decision. And any evidence noted in the redetermination as missing and any other evidence relevant to the appeal has to be submitted prior to the issuance of the, reconsider, uh, of the reconsideration decision. So evidence not submitted at the reconsideration level may wind up getting excluded from consideration at any subsequent level of appeal unless the appellant demonstrates good cause for submitting the evidence late. Now, reconsiderations are conducted on the record, and in most cases, the quick will send its decision to all parties within 60 days of receipt of the request for that reconsideration. The decision will contain information regarding further appeal rights should you have to take it to the next level, and keep this in mind, if the quick cannot complete its decision in the applicable time frame, it will inform you as the appellant of your right to escalate the case to the administrative law judge. All right, so moving into the ALJ hearing, if at least $170 remains in controversy following the quick's decision, a party to the reconsideration has the right to request an ALJ hearing, but you have to do this within 60 days of receipt of the reconsideration decision. Now, as an appellant, you also have to send a copy of the ALJ hearing request to all other parties uh, to the QIC reconsideration. And again, ALJ hearings are generally held by video teleconference or by telephone. But, as I said, if you don't want to do it that way, you have the right to ask for either uh, uh, an in-person hearing, um, which I don't know a lot of people that do, because you have to demonstrate good cause for requesting an in-person hearing. And, and obviously in the middle of, not the middle, but you know, still going through a public health emergency, I, I doubt it will be granted. Um, and again... The judges will make that determination as to whether an in-person hearing is warranted on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but for me, I talked about this before, as an appellant, I love to request the ALJs making their decisions without a hearing. It's, again, referred to as an on-the-record. Uh, again, the date of receipt of the reconsideration decision is presumed to be five days after the date on the actual dismissal unless there's evidence um, existing to the contrary. Uh, again, we've talked a lot about uh, the process of requesting an ALJ hearing. Um, again, hearing preparation procedures, obviously these are all set by the ALJ. Uh, CMS or its contractors may become a party to or participate in an ALJ hearing after providing notice to the ALJ and the parties to the hearing. And remember that the ALJ will generally issue a decision within 90 days of receipt of the hearing request. Uh, they are expediting these. They are getting done a lot faster. Uh, this time frame, as I said, can be extended for a variety of reasons, including but not limited to the case being escalated from the reconsideration level, the submission of additional evidence not included with the hearing requests, 
the request for an in-person hearing, the appellant's failure to send notice of the hearing request to other parties, and the initiation of discovery if CMS is an actual party. And again, if the ALJ does not issue a decision within the applicable time frame, the appellant has the right to ask the ALJ to escalate the case to the appeal council level. I'm not a fan of doing that. And again, remember, the amount of controversy required to request an ALJ hearing is increased annually by the percentage increase in the medical care component of the consumer price index for all urban consumers. All right. Um, we did talk about attorney adjudicators. Um, in order to have an attorney adjudicator review the administrative record in lieu of attending an ALJ hearing, um, if you're an appellant, you need to fill out what's called the waiver of right to an administrative law judge hearing. Uh, this is form OMA, O-M-H-A-104, and you have to submit it with your request for review by OMA. And you can find a direct link uh, to form OMHA-104 uh, by simply going out and doing a Google search. All right. So when you're calculating the amount in controversy, it's important to remember that the amount remaining in controversy is computed as the actual amount charged the individual for the items and services in the disputed claim reduced by any Medicare payments already made or awarded for the items or services and any deductible and or coinsurance amounts that may be collected for the items or services. So as an example, if you charge $500 and Medicare made zero payments, that means the subtotal balance would be $500. If there was a copayment made of $100, then your balance is $400. Thus, your amount in controversy is $400. So if OMA reviews a dismissal of a reconsideration request. Um, it's important to keep in mind that parties to the reconsideration have a right to request review of a QIC dismissal if the amount in controversy and other filing requirements are met. So the request for review has to be filed in writing with OMA within 60 days after the date of receipt of the QIC's dismissal. And the date of receipt of the reconsideration decision, as I said before, is presumed to be five days after the date on the dismissal, unless evidence exists to the contrary. So keep in mind that a party that requests OMA to review a QIC dismissal of a contractor's dismissal of a redetermination request will not receive an OMA review. The Quick's decision is binding and not subject to any further review, and that's actually under 42 CFR 405.974B3. Also, if the adjudication period for the QIC to complete its reconsideration has elapsed, with exceptions, obviously, for extensions for additional evidence, submissions, and late filings, the Quick has to send a notice to advise the parties that it cannot complete the reconsideration by the deadline and advise the appellant of the right to request escalation of the appeal to OMA. 
And if the appellant party chooses to escalate the appeal to OMA, they have to submit a written request with the quick in accordance with the instructions on the escalation request notice. Now, OMA's 180 calendar day period to issue a final decision, dismissal order, or remand order actually begins on the date the request for escalation is received by OMA. All right, so there's a lot more to talk about OMA's decisions of notifications, and, and there's some good information that's available out there on that. Uh, obviously, you know, if, if you have a hard time finding any of this information, uh, you obviously can um, reach out to me at S. Weiss at Doctors Management, which is abbreviated. So it's S. Weiss at drsmgmt.com. But you can also find a lot of this information that we're talking about today, especially OMA's decision for notification, uh, on the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals website. And it's very simple. It's www.hhs.gov forward slash O-M-H-A. All right. The final level that I want to talk about is the Appeal Council review. And if a party to the ALJ hearing is dissatisfied with an ALJ's decision, and it does happen from time to time, the party has the right to request a review by the Appeal Council. Now, there is no minimum monetary threshold required to request an Appeal Council because the minimum threshold was met at level three, which is the ALJ. Keep in mind that the request for Appeal Council review has to be submitted in writing within 60 days of receipt of the ALJ's decision, and you have to specify the issue or issues and findings that are being contested. So obviously you're going to want to refer to the ALJ decision for details regarding the procedures to follow when filing a request for Appeal Council review. And in general, the Appeals Council will issue a decision within 90 days of receipt of a request for review. And that time frame can be extended for various reasons, including but not limited to the case being escalated from an ALJ hearing. So if the Appeal Council does not issue a decision within the applicable time frame, you as an appellant have the right to ask the Appeal Council to escalate the case to the judicial review. And that's your fifth and final. And if at least um, uh, uh, um, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, $1,670 up to $1,700 uh, here in 2021 or more is, is still in controversy following the appeal council decision, um, you as the appellant, um, meaning a party to decision, has a right to request judicial review in federal district court. And again, the appellant has to file the request for review within 60 days of receipt of the appeal council's decision. And remember, the appeal council's decision will contain information, obviously, about the procedures for requesting judicial review. Um, just as with the ALJ level, remember, the amount of controversy required to request judicial review is increased annually by the percentage increase in the medical care component of the consumer price index for all urban consumers. 
So as I said, it was somewhere between $1,600 and $1,700 here in 2021. Um, obviously, you can look that number up on uh, Google or any other uh, search uh, engine that you like to use. So this brings me to the end of our podcast on structuring and creating successful appeals. Again, my name is Sean Weiss, a.k.a. The Compliance Guy. I really want to take the time again to thank you for joining me on this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and look forward to you joining me on another one down the road.